How you doing, everyone? This is Chris Free and Bennett with the Vancouver Film School, and welcome to the Storyteller Studio podcast. We've got an awesome show today. We are in the studio with Mr. Asan Nanji. He's the director of product for Electronic Arts. Asan has had some really interesting roles in the company. He's moved along, and we're going to be talking about the video game industry today, where it's going, what's happening, why it's exciting. Asan, welcome to the show. Good to be here. Thanks for coming in and doing this. I think this is a really exciting time to talk about video games. Can you first help our audience understand what does the director of product do, especially at a big company like EA? That's a, that's a cool job. What, what's, a, what's it all about? So director of product is generally looking at how does the product actually work in the market? and what is the business side of the games that we're actually building. So they are working alongside producers, designers, to make sure that the game is actually going to meet the needs of the player. And they're the ones who are actually responsible for kind of driving how we use data to make better decisions about the kinds of games that we're building. And the games are getting really sophisticated. Yeah. Um, we're going to talk about that in a second. But I want to look at your career. I think you're one of those people who has kind of, I think you would agree, you've got kind of a dream job. Um, it's, not, it's not as simple as just playing games all day, although you, you, you do have a healthy appetite in your video game repertoire, I would hope. To say the least. Yes, I really love that about you. And you started, you, where you are today is not where you started. Tell me about the, uh, where you first began with EA. When I first started, I was a assistant development manager right out of school. So I was helping the project management side of video games. And I kind of came in through a what was back then called the Development Director Onboarding Program out of uh, EA Vancouver, where the studio wanted to see if they could do more to grow project managers internally. Yeah. So they hired a bunch of MBAs, business students, engineering students who were more interested in kind of the development, development planning side of things. And they built a program to help get new grads into the company. And I came in through that program, and it gave me an opportunity to, you know, work with a number of different teams, work with a number of different leaders from across the org to understand, you know, how do games get made and what's the right way that we should actually go about making them. But coming into it as, like, a 21-year-old kid right out of school, that was the dream job right there. So good. Yeah. What a cool company, too. Um, and, of course, everybody knows, you know, from, from FIFA to... Uh, Mass Effect, your, your, your brand collection within EA is, is enormous. Um, you spent some time on FIFA on that project. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so when I first started at EA, uh, I was in the division that was really focused on handhelds. Yeah. Uh, PSP, Nintendo DS, and I spent time on FIFA there where we actually did the first Wii project for FIFA. So we built the first version of Wii with motion controls. Oh, I remember and that. that. Yeah, and that was that was a lot of fun, and you know the whole experience of figuring out how motion controls should fit in a sports game, that kind of thing. Right. It was it was a really exciting time because you know we all thought, oh, what an exciting new direction for the industry as a whole, because um, the Wii added so much innovation to just how we thought about how games could work, rather than just the traditional way they'd always been done, and then. Uh, I'd moved around, that was the first FIFA project I did, and then I kind of came back to it uh, after taking a little bit of a sabbatical from the company to work as the live producer for FIFA. And that was, you know, being responsible. Which was an innovation in and itself at the oh, time. Yeah. Because that, if you tell, tell, the, tell people how that worked. This is really cool. Yeah, so uh, 2009, uh, we had actually just recently lost the Champions League license. So if you, if we used to make Champions League games and we lost the Champions League license and all of a sudden, a couple of very senior people within the organization didn't have a project to work on. 
So they started spitballing and looking at, you know, what's some cool new stuff that we could introduce to the main FIFA game? And they invented FIFA Ultimate Team. And back then, you know, it was this DLC mode that was added on. It cost $10 to download. And then they had, like, incremental MTX packs that you could buy to get different players to build your fantasy teams with. And we all thought, oh, we're going to make all this money on people paying for the mode. And we're like, oh, if, you know, we'll... 70% of the revenue will come from people buying the DLC. Maybe we'll make a couple extra bucks on the packs. That's kind of cool. Mm-hmm. What a neat thing to bring to the game. And it was the exact opposite. People loved the mode. So much so that we eventually just we eventually pushed it to be free. Yeah. Uh, and people just kept buying the packs and building teams. And that mode has now become the single most played mode in the entire game. And it actually kind of inspired... You know, Madden Ultimate Team and yeah. NHL Ultimate Team and even NBA 2K has taken it for their my career. Yeah. And it's really kind of become a staple of uh, of the sports game industry. I can't remember a time when, when it wasn't there. Um, and that's how, I, how, how much of an impression it made, I think, yeah. on the industry. Um, so you got to do all, all sorts of that really cool stuff. Now, about a year ago, you came back from Sweden. I did. And what were you doing in Sweden? I was the product director for the Battlefield franchise. So Battlefield awesome. is a title that has, you know, traditionally been one of these big disc games where yeah. you buy the disc and then there's a couple DLC map packs and that was the end of it, yeah. right? Uh, and what the industry's kind of moved more towards is these live service games where there's more frequent updates, there's more for, like a lot more content to be played all the time. There's some version of a business in the game that helps kind of sustain the lifetime of the game. And... I was really just kind of asked to go out there and help that team make that transition for in terms of how they build the game, how they plan it, and how they allocate resources, and really how they think about their engagement with the players and how they think about, you know, how do we use the data that we have about how players are playing our game to make better decisions about what kind of game we should be building and what kind of content they'd actually like to play. I want to look at the economics of the industry. I want to talk about that with you in a moment uh, to, to sort of open up uh, one area. We always get into storytelling on this mm-hmm. podcast. We really, that's a, it's a common thread across the school, every program. It's really foundational to what we, we do at Vancouver Film School. And the video game industry, whether you are a, a, you know, a, a developer, designer, producer, um, if you're in, in marketing, if you're in, in, in product management, there is at the core of modern video games, a story. And, and I think in a way that we've probably never seen uh, before that is rivaling and competing, you could argue more so in terms of revenue, with film and television. There is, it, this is the new modern platform for telling incredible stories. Mm-hmm. Um, we're seeing it in, in IP that's been established as it branches off like Star Wars, uh, or, it's, or it's unique new IP like Anthem or, or Mass Effect or Uncharted or, th- you know, all sorts of great stuff coming out of Xbox, PlayStation and other other big companies. Um, are you surprised that video games, as someone who probably grew up playing them the way I did and we and I don't mean by the technology, I mean, are you surprised that they have become this sophisticated in terms of the stories? If anything, I'm actually surprised we haven't accelerated and become even more sophisticated because I think the a lot of the people who tell the stories in video games today are people who tend to have like a background in writing mm-hmm. or in uh, film production. Yeah. 
And that's why a lot of the stories that you see, depending on which studio and what kind of game they're making, they kind of get told in similar fashions, right? Like a lot of the games that you see now, um, more and more of the story is being a lot of the stories told in cinematics, mm-hmm. right? They're cutscenes that are actually right. explaining the story. And what we've actually seen now and where I think it's going, which what I'm really excited by, is what we've seen now is the emergence of the environment being the storyteller itself within games. Right. If you look at Fortnite, there's no cinematics. Nope. The, the story of the world is told through the world. And... It's somehow being told in a battle royale game, which, you know, you're going in, you're playing a session, and yet somehow there's sure. a story that keeps getting told over yeah. time of what happens in the world, as opposed to, hey, this is now a, we're going to lock the screen down, you as a player are no longer interacting it with it, but we're going to show you this video clip about what everyone in the scene is supposed to be feeling. And what I'm really excited by for how the stories are being told now in video games is we're finding a more video game specific voice where it doesn't feel like stop as a player, all the cool stuff that you were doing, running, jumping, shooting, hacking, slashing. Now we're going to show you a video clip that imparts the story. Right, right, right. And that's the part that I'm actually the most fascinated and excited by because that's where I feel like we're going to find more interesting ways to start telling those stories. Yeah, and you know, we... we, um about a year ago, we launched, we added a branch to our writing program. Mm-hmm. Our writing for film and television now has, and games, yeah. as a component of that. And I, I think you're, you, you totally nailed it. Um, it's interesting you're, you're, you're surprised it's not more sophisticated. I feel like if you go back to early Nintendo, that was my generation. Mm-hmm. I could probably remember an Atari. But there was still very much, even with an unsophisticated technology, ultimately it was a test of, of hand-eye and skill yeah. and score that kind of thing. And then somewhere along the way you get like maybe, I don't know, Sierra uh, and you start getting King's Quest type games and narrative driven, very story driven games. Mm -hmm. And you could look at the trend and it goes that way to to the point where, you know, where my mom or my dad would, would, you know, say turn it off or they wouldn't want you to play these games or you'd you'd have to go down to the arcade to, I fast forward now, I'm in my 40s and my wife enjoys watching Like the the narrative, the, it's 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 truly become a substitute for it. Mm-hmm. Um, whether you're doing the in-game cinematic or it's the cutscene or whatever, and I wonder, is the goal now as you're developing new games uh, to to I guess I guess you, you the technology has got to be paramount, but how much are you investing in the story, in the background, or, and, the, and the, the team that you're building around it? Do they truly come from all those other backgrounds now, or is that something you develop and teach in-house or within the organization? Storytelling is everything. How are you taking that seriously at EA? At EA, it really does depend on kind of the studio yeah. and the kind of game that's getting made, right? So, for example, at a Bioware, who are famous for making story-based games, their their approach is they really train their writers and their designers in-house to make sure that they are weaving that narrative throughout every mission, every encounter, even all the barks that are happening in the background. It's really, really driven by story because the story is kind of the main thing that's driving the whole game forward. I'd contrast that with a studio like DICE where they're building a single-player mission, but what they're really doing is pushing all the game mechanics into that view so that you can learn the game for multiplayer through the single player. And those missions tend to be a lot shorter. They're a lot more focused. You know, it's not some 40-hour story uh, that, like a Bioware game, it's more of a 
two, three hour story, not even. Yeah. And how you frame and how you write that and how you pace that is going to be very different. So each of these studios actually kind of develop their own unique culture for how they're, you know, concepting the story, how they're laying it out, how they actually go about writing it and planning it and then, you know, getting all the actors in place and all that. Each of these, each studio has to take a very unique approach because that the way that they write it has to work for how it fits in with the rest of the game. Is there the gamble? I I, I would think too, there's a real, there's risk management in that. I think about Destiny, Mm -hmm. one of my all time favorites, and the story and the IP, the lore, all the back pieces, the characters, they got it right. But I mean, that was in development before they even went to market, you know years and I'm sure Anthem by comparison which I think by the way I, I love I love that game and I mm-hmm. think the the concept there the IP was really cool um, in Hollywood you've got an idea you could take it to a producer or a, or a network or a streamer you get your your three minutes to pitch and it's you know yes or no yeah you're in you're out and there's there's this endless stream of ideas that Hollywood can look at right you really are committed to something once you've picked that IP. What does a student, what does any any student who, who has an idea for a game concept for IP that they want to bring to market, what are their real chances of getting that in front of a, of a company like EA or, you know, producers and developers that would take that seriously because if they, you know, once you've committed to that, you, mm-hmm. you, you, can't, you can't turn around and, and, and run it through a test audience like they can in film and television. That's got to be... A really frightening concept if you don't if you don't get it just right. Yeah, there is no easy silver bullet there, and that's you know when you see all stories that get shared about game development and crunch and issues at different studios. That's a lot of what tends to drive that is mm-hmm. studios that will churn on trying to find the fun, but find the fun as it relates to the story. That's one of the things that makes it really really difficult because when you're trying to when you come up with a concept, one of the things that you know, I have friends, like people come up to me at weddings and they're like, oh, you work at EA, I have a great idea for a video game. Right. And they can actually tell me an unbelievable story. But what tends to miss in that sometimes is, well, what's the hook that makes it fun? And what's the, what's the mechanic within the game that would make moving through that story as, en- as enjoyable as you would want it to be for the player to want to see the whole thing through? Because, you know, the one of the truest things I think I felt ever with... Um, you know, Call of Duty as one example, yeah. is if all you're doing in running is running and gunning, that will get boring in, when you're just playing the AI. You have to figure out what's different about each unique kind of gameplay scenario within that fits within the story mm-hmm. that keeps the gameplay as interesting as the story is to keep both those things moving forward in parallel. And that's the thing that I'd really you know, encourage people to think about when they're thinking about story as it relates to game is how do the game mechanics show themselves and reveal themselves within the story and how do they maintain their freshness over the duration of the entire game because that's the area where it's really easy for you know two things to really just not connect with each other because if you're you know if you have a story where it's really last of us imagine if last of us oh yeah unbelievable story you feel the tension throughout but add call of duty's game mechanics to last of us where the moment you have this really emotional discussion and then all of a sudden a monster pops on screen but now the game mechanic is you can run and shoot them with an m16 that will just blow them up and it's you're then running room to room to room it wouldn't feel right 
So I, I, I get exactly what you mean, and let's talk about Last of Us for a second. Here, here's the flip side of that, and I'm curious what you think on this. At the same time, the game is a masterpiece. Yeah. It's unbelievable. Um, but if I pitch that game to you right now, uh, what do we got? Post-apocalyptic zombie world, uh, a guy and a girl trying to make their way through survival, yep. crafting things. Um, you know, will they make it? Will they won't? Decision-based stuff that basically describes Left for Dead, yep. uh, describes Days Gone, describes um, the other one that I couldn't remember. Dead Rising. Right. Dead Rising, yep. right? Like all these zombie games. And I'm thinking, if you are a a student trying to break into the industry and you've got this IP, how do you get that story? Like, how did, how did that make it? That, that's, Last of Us isn't that original. How do you get that IP yeah. in front of those people? How do you get those stories? How does somebody get up to you in a wedding and really blow your mind outside of what makes it fun? Well, they have to tell me what's different, Yeah. right? Like, what's the, the unique spin on it that's not going to be seen in every single other game, right? Like, zombie games, you know, They'll be like, oh, there's a scarcity of bullets and resources. There's some element of stealth that you're trying to sure. uh, sneak in there as well. Yeah. But t- when you're telling me what the story is, tell me why the stealth mattered and what will make that stealth feel really tense or why the scarcity will somehow be something that doesn't just end up frustrating the player it's- themselves. And overall, try to tell me you know, what would make this something that is a must play and truly unique. That's one of the hardest things I think that comes through with a lot of stories is how does you, how do you one sustain the fun and work all the game mechanics in and then how do you keep it being fun so that it doesn't just, you know, after 3 hours feel like you're constantly running through rooms full of chest high walls because that sure will get boring. What's the unique things that kind of come into it? Talk to me about microtransactions. This is a big, hot topic. Mm-hmm. You guys have had, um, EA's had your, your, your name in that conversation. A lot of big companies have. Um, is it the right way forward? Is it the wrong way forward? Um, but before you, you, you either defend or, or, or present it, I would say this. If we agree that video games are, are in many ways like, like going to the movies, it's mm-hmm. a storytelling device, um, Popcorn's getting more expensive. Uh, we can pay to have premier seats, and yep. we can be served fine dining now. And I see all of these, you know, there are arcades now in the movie theater I go to with my kid. Mm-hmm. Um, I see all of these as microtransactions within that experience, too. And nobody seems to be up in arms about that, or we accept that as part of the add-on cost of that experience. Why is microtransactions in video games so controversial and where, where do you stand on that as being a necessary part of the experience or not? Do you have an opinion on it? Yeah, so I think it really it depends on how they're actually implemented within the game, mm-hmm. right, and kind of what you're bringing to it. The most common, you know, speaking to kind of state of games industry overall, um, first, the thing that you note is the price of games hasn't changed, right? You it's just still high. It's, it's still high. It's well, still, well, it is what it is. It is what it is, right? Yeah. But games have been yeah. 60 bucks for the last 20 years. Sure. And the cost of development has gone way, way up for, game, for studios because sure. the games are bigger. They're more detailed. You need more artists, more programmers. You need all that. And the way the, stu- the, the industry has kind of decided, okay, this is how we're going to try to make up some of the gap is either by DLC or microtransactions. And in some areas, you know, completely different business models like free-to-play, but let's just stay in the console world for a second. So the microtransactions are kind of a necessary evil that 
the industry has said, okay, we need to have these things because we need to make up the cost of development, but also they have shareholders and all these other, you know, commitments that they need to fulfill, financial commitments that they need to fulfill. They need to be successful. Where microtransactions generally fall down is when they break the game experience, right? And that they don't actually serve some sort of purpose. And I feel like that's an area where the design of it has not always been the thing that's been really well flushed out. And that's an area where, you know, EA has been investing a lot of time and effort, like my role for the last four years has actually been really dedicated to that, is finding the ways that will allow us to have more of the game, not feel like it's being broken up to be sold to you as microtransaction, yep. but that they are feeling somewhat complementary to your overall experience. You know, the, a perfect example is within the FIFA Ultimate Team stuff that we've talked about in the past, where, you know, People will argue, well, why can't I just buy the players that I want? Why yeah. do I have to buy them in this randomized What's the answer? Pack? That's a great question. I've asked yeah. it myself. Yeah. So there's there's people have kind of come through with all sorts of answers, and then there's official answers, and then there's the answers that I know a lot of people on the game design team actually work through, which is if we made it so that you basically got your team and you were just able to progress exactly with that team, then everyone would have the same team. And that's kind of boring. Right? That is, Everyone, it, is, it is boring, but it is also, I'm 40 years old. Yep. I don't have the hours available to yep. me that my 11-year-old does or, you know, a kid in high school or college might yep. have. And I still want to be competitive. I still want to, in my, what limited time I can devote to having fun and playing games. Yep. I want to be able to keep up. I want to be able to do that online experience. I want to be able to catch up to what I miss. Why, why, why shouldn't I be allowed to do that? That's part of my player experience too, isn't mm -hmm. it? Yeah, absolutely. And to be fair, I think it's the, but how does that actually work out is the key. And the balance there is super important. Because if you were able to simply buy the most expensive pair of shoes and walk onto a basketball court and beat the guy who is objectively playing harder, working harder, and just better than you skill-wise, that person's not going to have a good time if you as a 40-year-old guy can simply outspend him to that competitive advantage. Totally. And I right? agree with that. And that's, but, but there's that's a difference between the working thing. harder and working longer. Yes, and I do see that there is a real. I mean, we, we'll talk about esports in a minute, but the, the the amount of the volume of game time mm -hmm. that some of these Twitch streamers are able to devote by comparison to what their audience can even could even yeah. match, it's not always necessarily skill. Yeah, it's time. So that's all I mean. I wonder if it's. Um, I wish there was. I wish there was. Do you think it's as controversial? Is this just where they are now? Do you think we are microtransactions here to stay, or do you think the you know all the all the uh, associations and groups around the industry that are you know causing problems about it will ultimately eliminate like is free to play where it's going to go or is it going to find a happy medium i think there's a happy medium that'll eventually get found battle pass in fortnite is a perfect example people feel like hey i'm getting something out of this i'll get things by playing the game no matter what but this is something i can opt into and because they're enjoying the game and the game's well managed and well run people don't have a negative sentiment towards paying for that season pass. Right. Whereas if the game is broken and you're asking for people to pay season pass and you're locking content away, you're going to generate some negative sentiment towards yourself by doing that. Sure. It's finding that balance into, you know, what's, what's going to make the game fun and accessible for everyone and not fundamentally break your game balance. And I think that's an area that's very easy for teams to get I, I don't disagree. I think that's well said. I look at what's happening now on the TV side with content streaming. Yeah. Uh, Disney Plus launched uh, yesterday. Um, 
Netflix is constantly, you know, asserting their dominance. Uh, Apple TV Plus just mm-hmm. launched. We've got Peacock is coming out soon. Yeah. There's a couple others uh, on the horizon. Um, they're all exploring with new models of the streaming subscription or annual cost. And no one seems to have a problem with that. It's binge or bust, right? Um, but a- again, on, on the Battle Pass uh, concept for Fortnite, you're right. There's, that does seem to be... Nobody's up in arms about that because there is value and, yeah. and, and it seems to be satiating what the consumer wants. Um, but then you've also got on that vein the idea of being a bystander of video games for the first mm-hmm. time, right? And, you know, we were mentioning eSports before. Um, you've got a couple... FIFA has eSports dominance. Yeah. And I just saw that the other day there was some controversy over um, three or the, the top four players or potentially having a, a, a private Discord chat. Are you allowed to talk about this? Uh, I don't know if I know enough about it to give you oh, an okay. informed opinion. Well, my they had uh, what I had read was, um, it would have been cool if you said, I can neither confirm nor deny. That would have been <laughs> awesome. We would have had like a CIA-level uh, edit necessary. These guys were on Discord basically trying to find a way to not play each other yeah. so that they could go longer in the competition. And I thought, and everybody was wound up about it. It was for a FIFA tournament. Yeah. Um, and so they got they, they got banned, and there was like, uh, you know, they maybe had to pay a fine, or I can't remember what it was. But I thought, man, we've made it. You guys are definitely in real sports now. Yeah. I mean, this is exactly the kind of stuff that, you know, 30 years ago, you know, price fixing with the mob or, or crooked referees or players throwing games. I mean, this is right out of a page of, of modern sports. Um, and stadiums are filling up for people to watch video games. Does that shock you? Would you have predicted that? Uh, I definitely would have predicted that. Like, we could see that was coming for a while. Only because, having been in the live game, the number of times I would get direct message by people on Twitter going, I have an idea to have run a tournament. I was like, oh my, it's thousands. Thousands over the years have been messaging me going, I have an idea. How do I get, how do I start my own FIFA tournament? And I'm (laughs) like... Uh, there's issues with just doing that. That's not the easiest thing in the world yeah. for me as just one of the guys on the team to give you permission and all the systems that you would want to do that. So the, I, I always had this feeling that that demand was there like several years ago. And then just seeing, you know, the rise of League of Legends and games like that in Korea, in China, you could kind of see it coming. You could see that energy starting to kind of come together. So I saw that part. What I What I think I've missed is just the lengths some people will go to yeah. to to try to get ahead and win in some of those things. Because for me, and the, re- the reason I say that is because I know how that last stage happens, as in for the people who show up at the actual event. You know, if you, it's kind of like if you were busting up steroids for everything to the <laughs> Olympics and you went through all the qualifying events and then you got to the Olympics where you're in like, in front of the entire world, yeah. or and you just look at that, that, that steroids. Like, you're going to get tested. For sure. You're for here sure. now. Yeah. You will get tested, right? And that's the part for me that's still crazy because, you know, we see people trying to cheat in all of our games. And anytime there's any type of competitive Is it easier role, to f- discover it? Like, with, with steroids, there's a, there's a blood test there's and, blood like, t- they yeah. get them. Is it harder or easier because there's back-end technology? Uh, it's a bit of both. Yeah. So, the the... The difference is with steroids, you can uh, the blood test catches most things. Right, right, right. It's only when there's like some super new drug that they have to add it to the test. For sure. Whereas people are so ingenious in how they come up with ways to cheat, right? Because technically, this what you just said, those guys avoiding playing each other, 
That's there's no blood test. There's for that. no blood test for no, that. No, no. Someone someone ratted. Basically, one of them. Someone ratted them rolled. out. Uh, yeah. yeah, on the on, on the Discord. Discord. Yeah, and so that's that's not happening through our backend services. There's no way for us to force people to play each other at different skill levels. Like we ma- we match make and there's rules and all these algorithms to kind of catch those things. But something like that's super difficult to to figure out. Whereas you know if someone's using an aimbot or someone is using uh, a disconnect hack on their opponents. Like, those kinds of things. We'll catch them, we'll find them, and we'll, we'll ban people for that. But yeah. we always, you know, we'd always go through, right before a major event, there's a pass that's done to see, hey, everyone who's kind of qualifying right now, are these people legitimate? And we'll go through the pass, and we'll pull people out and say, nope, that's, that person's clearly cheating. And what I can say with pretty good confidence is, you know, we have people come to the events, and it's pretty obvious they should be there. Yes. Right? Oh, yeah, yeah, Whereas yeah. Whereas if, yeah. you know, it's if we had a bunch of people show up and they were just complete scrubs because they're not in the their own personal controlled network environment, they're not running a PC alongside their game, you know, that would just come There's right to the surface. There's telltale signs for There's sure. There's so many telltale signs. And that's really the type of thing that we're, we're trying to manage. And that's the part that f- within esports has been tougher to see. What I'm trying to figure out or what I'm maybe waiting for um, – my son and I were, you know, every year we will, you know, we'll go to a, a Canucks game. Mm-hmm. Um, and now he's kind of like, I don't know, dad, there's an Overwatch team in Vancouver now. And he's like, I think I want to go to a, a, a Titans game. Yeah. And so now he, he is drawn to being a spectator to that sport, to the yeah. eSport, which is cool. But where I think sports as a storytelling device has always been successful is there's the drama of the game and how it will unfold winner, loser, whatever. But each of those athletes, right? You think of the Super Bowl last year, you look at what Goff and um, Brady, Brady, the youngest ever quarterback, yeah. the oldest ever quarterback. And there was a whole bunch of uh, dichotomous things across these teams that made the drama compelling. The players made it interesting. Yeah. They, they show you the backstory. This kid came from a hard part of town, overcame adversity, blah, blah, blah. And they do a better job. I'm not running through it because I don't buy into it. I just, you get what I mean. Um, We don't have that yet in esports. The athletes, the game game players were still, they're still struggling, I think, to find that that publicity where you identify with them. Um, We're seeing like Twitch has personalities, but I think until they can do that, I don't know if it can necessarily take hold. Do you think that'll get better? Does are you guys looking to is the EA strategy to try to be a part of esports as a as a as an arena, or is it something where you're looking for players to to carry the mantle as well? Like, what's your what's your take on that? Where does where does a where does a big company with a game like FIFA or um, Madden or all you know all these great sports games? Where do you where do you position yourselves on esports? Is that something you can speak to at all? Uh, I can't speak on behalf of all of EA. Of course, of but, course. You know, from my own personal perspective, it's about driving passion for the game. And one of the things that I think, you know, real world sports is an excellent parallel for this is when you can see someone playing something that you like to do as well at a at a completely different level, it kind of gives you a greater investment into it because you start to realize some of the things that are possible. And some of those things might not be things you could ever achieve, but at the very least, they drive your interest into the game itself. You know, like within basketball, I can't dunk. I'm never going to be able to dunk. Yeah. But I sure like watching the slam dunk competition. Of course. Right? Yeah. And it builds my interest and my engagement with, with the sport, with the game, to see other people playing it and being able to see, 
you know, how are, how are they approaching this? What can I learn from them to improve my own personal gameplay? And I think for us, what we're trying to do, you know, at, at EA, one of the things that we've talked about is that everyone should get to be a part of esports, right? So it's not just about the 10, 20 people at an event in front of an entire stadium, but, you know, how do you build all the underlying infrastructure for that sport to actually become a thing? Because, you know, we watch the NBA, the NHL, the NFL on TV, but that's just the peak of the mountain for the sport of football, hockey, basketball, whatever. There is leagues, kids playing them, gym class where people play them, right? Like that, right, that's, right. that everyone gets to be a part of the sport. That's just the pinnacle of it. And with an EA, the way, you know, I've been part of conversations for this and I really I truly believe this is by kind of building up that sports part of it, what we do, the, the pinnacle esports side of it is we want to have it support or be kind of the shining north star for what the rest of the game does so that everyone who plays like plays FIFA feels like they're playing soccer as if they were a kid at the playground or feels like they're in a Sunday kickabout. But that what's happening in the esports world is you get to now watch the best in the world. You get to see what they're doing, think about what they're doing, see if you could build, take their strategies into your own gameplay and really just make it so that when you're not playing the game, there's still something about the game to talk about. Right. And that's, and that's really, well for me, what esports can drive is yeah. this is the thing that happens out of the game, but still keeps you interested in the game itself. Why did Ghost Recon, the new one, suck? And why didn't Red Dead Redemption 2 not suck? And I mean that both figuratively and literally yeah. in terms of sales and critical appeal. Um, RDR2 arguably is just, I don't, there's, there's no difference, just yeah. looks better. Um, and yet, in the same vein, it's open world Ghost Recon. It's, is it the genre? What, how do you, how, that's a mystery. A lot of people, a lot of development dollars gone. That's yeah. a frightening thing if you're Ubisoft. Yeah. How do you guys protect yourselves from that? Why do games suck and why do some games not suck? I think the, well, some games suck because just didn't handle development right. Shipped too many bugs, didn't get all the features in, yeah. didn't tell the story really well, and, you know, a team eventually just comes up against a deadline and they end up just having to ship. And they ship whatever they have and we figure we'll fix it afterwards. And sometimes communities are okay with that and sometimes they're not. You know, I think the, to me, the big thing with a lot of those games is did they meet what players were expecting and what they were hoping for? Red Dead, to me, is a great example of it built on what the last game was, but it didn't try to change what the last game was. Right. There, like, there is Red Dead Online, yep. which is completely new and different, but it's, it's still, okay. it still builds, it's, it's additive to the core Red Dead experience that right. was, they were trying to hit. Whereas I think with something like Ghost Recon, people loved Wildlands, right? Like, uh, they I, absolutely yeah, loved I'm one it. of them. And, Guilty as charged. Great game. And the game for the newest one changed in a way that it wasn't quite the same as Wildlands, but it wasn't totally different. But that change wasn't something that that core audience really felt like they were asking for it. That's what they wanted. They feel like they take it and then there's been interpretations. I've heard people say it's like, oh, I can see where the cash grab is in this mode, right. in this game now. And I, I'm not into that, right? The, the expectations weren't clearly set on what it was supposed to be. You know, I actually look at, we talked about this, Mass Effect is a great example. Yes, yeah. Andromeda. Emmy what one, happened? Two, Emmy 1, 2, and 3, great game. Andromeda, if it didn't have Mass Effect written in front of it so that you didn't have an expectation of what this game was going to be about, 
I don't think anybody would have complained about it. It's a great game if you didn't have it be a mass framed as a Mass Effect sequel. Right. Right. And it wasn't to be in some ways it wasn't because they didn't call it Mass Effect Four. They called it Mass Effect Andromeda. It's a game that's happening in the same universe, but it's a very very different game from. What Mass Effect Three was. Yeah, and actually, Victor Lucas, who was on uh, the show a couple weeks ago, gave a. Um, he, he and I have talked about this in the past. He gave a really intelligent look at Andromeda, and he said, "You know, the critics, which is a problem for any yeah. game and for any any story you're trying to tell through games, you got that early surge of of critics." Yeah. Um, he said, "Look, all those things they were talking about. Most people, a game like Mass Effect, you can't play it." in 24 hours. You yeah. can't play it yeah. in, in three weeks. You, yeah. you, you've got to go through it. And there wasn't a single, in the race to get the reviews out, yeah. most of those bugs or whatever the problems they might have, uh, have critiqued more, more than likely came from less than 24 hours of gameplay. Yeah. Um, and you know, you go, yeah, of course, that makes total sense. Um, and he said, if you play it through, you see something entirely different and it's worth, it's worth punching through that. When you're, you know, I guess any storyteller has critics but mm -hmm. do you guys arm yourselves you know in preparation for that in a, in a new way now where that you know that first 24 hours can make or break the title yeah um i would argue anthem probably got its own taste of that it was it was dubbed a, a destiny killer yeah um amazing game um didn't live up to it because the critics hype was there how do you punch through that how can anyone do it films find cult followings even when they get a terrible rotten tomato score how does a video game find a a, a life after a bad a bad early review from yeah. Kotaku. I think there's a number of different slants that have kind of been taken on that. One is the company can't abandon the game, right? They need to continue to invest in the community, invest in the game, fix the problems that are there, and make the changes that are required to kind of get that game back to where the community actually wants it to be. Like, there's so many instances of games that have launched poorly and then gone on to become massive successes. Diablo 3, the best example of the lot. If you told anyone today, hey, this game actually sucked when it came out, or that it wasn't, you know, sure, aware sure. of it back then, yeah. they tell you that the game was, what are you talking about? This is like one of the best games on PC in the last 10 years. And it's like, well, last ten, yeah, last 10 years. But the when it came out, it was panned because it kept breaking. Yeah, it I was remember. a broken game. Yeah. And people just shit on it constantly yep. back then. And now, we're all hyped like hell for Diablo Four. That trailer just was, was it looks sick. nuts. Yeah, it looks, it looks amazing, right? Yeah. Like the, yeah. the the hype is all there for it, and that's because Blizzard stuck with it. They fixed the issues, they resolved the things, they continued to support it, and they're one of those studios that does a phenomenal job at making sure that the game works long term. And you know, EA tends to take a lot of crap for certain things, but you know, Star Wars Battlefront Two had a really rough launch. Um, that actually launched just as I was arriving at DICE to start my new game I there. I remember, yeah. And what you saw there was that the studio didn't actually just go, oh, well, screw it, this is done, we're over. The team that was there stuck with it, continued to make changes. They completely changed the entire core progression loop. And now when you talk to people who are still in the game and still playing it, they'll tell you it's an unbelievable experience. It is, it is but, amazing. Uh, a tip of the hat. Thank it you. Is, it is fantastic. Thank you to the team back at DICE who busted their asses for it but they did one of the thing one of the stories that's never going to happen now is all the reviewers aren't going to go back and revise their reviews it's it's no kinda, exactly right it's kind of stuck exactly on and exactly. that's that's an area where i think you know I, I wish there was some i don't know what the answer is there but that's an area that i feel like you know i wish more games journalists would actually kind of go back and say 
hey, we are going to revise our review or how we're going to change how we actually frame this and see this and kind of revisit these live service games over yeah, time. Yeah, I, I don't have any data to, pr to back this up, but I feel it is so inherently true. M I, I don't read a Rotten Tomato score or most reviews before a film. A trailer, yeah. I've kind of made up my mind. I know what I like. Yeah. I'll gamble. Maybe it's just the cost, upfront cost of a movie ticket. I yeah. don't know what it is. But we, for some reason, and I know a lot of people who feel the same way, we don't, we're not as beholden to the critic as, as we are to the video game industry. Yeah. Th those critics, for some reason, maybe it's because you walking in, you're going to drop down 60, 70 bucks. Maybe that's, you know, and a lot of time. Yeah. And a lot of time or no time if it doesn't work. Maybe that's what it is. But I think you're right. They've got to find a medium where they can allow the player to go through that experience because you think of the, the volume of work and the people. It's usually twice the size and length of a, fi a feature film. Yeah. Um, it's just heartbreaking when you see it, what could have been a great tour, maybe still is, panned to 24 hours, and it, and it just ends up in the, the used bin at EB Games or, yeah. or, or, or Games uh, Boutique. Um, well, that's, I think that's where, you know, YouTubers, influencers, those folks actually have a ton more influence than the critics sometimes where, you know, I've seen, I've seen them go back to older games and go, oh, my God, they fixed this. This yeah. is great. I recommend this to everybody who follows my channel now. And that's been, from a game studio perspective, we love those guys. That's why we invite more and more of them to come and review games and be a part of the process and to give us feedback because we, we appreciate those who understand that, you know, a game now isn't just something you play at a moment in time. It is something you play over time. They've become true live services that are going to keep continue to evolve and grow. And sometimes teams can actually step back. Yeah. But on the whole, the games industry's gotten pretty good at making sure that games launch as well as they can, or they take a ton of shit and they fix everything as fast as they can. But then that they're going to keep investing in these things and they're going to keep making them better and better. But because we're on this vicious news cycle, which is always on to the next one, we don't go back and go, hey, this this game's really good now. Well said. Uh, just a couple more questions I want to get from you before we wrap. And uh, talking with Asin Nanji from Electronic Arts, the director of product. What a cool dream job. Mm -hmm. And we, we talked about this earlier. How does somebody go about getting that dream job? Tell me how you got the job in the first place and, and any advice you have to dreamers out there who want to break into the game design industry, whether it's designing them, developing mm -hmm. them, or going down the path of, of, of bringing them to life the way you did. How, how did you land that job, and how could somebody replicate your success? So I got really lucky. Um, and people always laugh at this story when I tell it to them, but one of my cousins in university was uh, organizing a conference, and EA just happened to be a sponsor of that conference. And a friend of mine dared me to give my feedback on NHL 2005, to one of the recruiters that was there. So I did for 45 minutes. I told him everything <laughs> that was wrong really? with NHL 05 for 45 <laughs> minutes, breaking down, here's where the animation cycle's wrong, your AI is off because you're always going offside, just into excruciating detail. Because I played the hell out of that game in university. My third year grades will probably reflect that. And at the end of it, they were like, okay, so what's the job you're applying for? I'm like, I'm not applying for a job. I'm not a computer science guy. I'm a business management oh, guy. Yeah. He's like, we'll find you something. <laughs> right? That's amazing. Because the thing he keyed on on was you care. You're passionate and you know how this, you know about this stuff. You're, and that's truly how you got it your foot in the I door. That, yeah. He took, my, uh, he took my resume. He gave me his card 
and I got flown out to Vancouver three months later for interviews. Oh, my God. That's amazing. Yeah. It was the luckiest fluke of my entire life, and I've never looked back. Good for you. And, you know. How, how does somebody do that? I mean, not everybody gets that window, that chance. Yeah. Do you, what would you say to someone who, is it just be bold, or what, how do you get there? I think what I experienced was just a microcosm of being able to show that you give a shit and that you know kind of enough of what you're talking about yeah. for someone to take a chance on you. Right? Like, the, the number one thing I tell to students is make a game or be a part of a game community or understand how the games work. And especially if you have, you know, a specific studio that you want to work at or that you're trying to get into, understand what they do and how they do it and ask tons of questions and meet people and go right. to the events and really just be persistent in the area that you're interested in and put yourself out there, right? Like people put your opinions out there, put your interests out there and put the work that you've done out there because the more you do that, the better you'll get at what you're doing and the interest that you're showing and how you're talking about things. And someone will notice because what we really strive for within the game development industry is that we want people who have passion because the people who have passion will always kind of put a little bit more of themselves into it. We have that luxury because everyone wants to work in games and it's cool compared to say, you know, yeah. making educational yeah. software or traffic light routing software and nothing against traffic light routing software, but that's not something that, you know, gets me excited. But sure. If I know that you're excited about games, I know that you'll do more to learn about it and you'll be a me better member of the team because of it. And I think like that's to me one of the things that I've seen is for new grads and students that kind of come in, if you come in with the knowledge of, with the expectation or the mindset of, I know how to do this. If you put me in charge, we'll make the best game ever. I'm like, man, do you know how long Amy Henning was making games for before Naughty Dog let her write Uncharted? I'll bet. Right? Like the, the, it's a ton of work, and there's so much that goes into trying to make one of these games. What you need to kind of come in with is an open mind, a ton of humility, but being really excited about what you're doing so that someone on the other side can go, yeah, this guy, wants this, guy this girl wants to come in, and they want to do the best job possible. I, I want to help them. Because no one in games is trying to keep people out. That's, that's the other secret. No one's trying to keep people out of gaming. We want people to come into gaming. Yeah. But we need people to also be able to show us that they want to be in gaming. Um, Aston, it's awesome to see you. I hope you will come back again. I could talk this industry with you all day, and I think there's a ton of learning for our students and for anyone who really cares about it. I know how much you love it. Will you come back and hang out another time? Absolutely. I really appreciate you being on the show. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Asin Nanji, the Director of Product for Electronic Arts. Thanks for coming on, man. Thanks for having me.